This podcast is brought to you by Pragmatic Solutions, the leading iGaming PAM platform with a modular approach, including many benefits like a fast, secure, and scalable API-based platform integrated with all major third-party products and services. Make sure you head over to Pragmatic Solutions and join our smart thinking. Well, it's uh, great to have you here. Finally, we've been planning this for a while. And um, Megan, I want to start uh, by asking you to look over your shoulder, actually, to uh, what you see over there. <laughs> one of the favorite books of all time. Yes, one of the best books of all time. And uh, you mentioned here just before the uh, the podcast that you just read uh, The Little Prince, which happens to be uh, the book that inspired my tattoos. Yes. I have uh, the drawing one and drawing two on my, on my arms to remind myself of the... Uh, uh, important lessons from this book, but uh, what did you make of it? I remember reading it uh, probably a good 15 years ago, and I think getting older is a beautiful thing because you can get the same message 15 years later, and it has a completely different effect on you. And the thing for me about The Little Prince that really stands out is about authenticity and connecting to your ability to live a fruitful and happy life. There is so much emotion in that book. And when we engage with that emotion and see how it reflects on ourselves, you can put the book down and every time you look at it, you'll remember the lesson. I love that. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible book, you know, and it's, it's one of those books where you read it as a child, you read mm-hmm. it as a teenager, you read it as a grown up and it's three different books. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. It's when text can relate to you in different ways, the text doesn't change. You do. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's absolutely be- beautiful. So far, we we start with a bit of a book club uh, here today, Magana. And um, so when I read the uh, Little Prince uh, for the first time, I was amazed, you know, because I I have I have never been an um, avid reader, mm-hmm. really. But actually, Little Prince was the book that uh, triggered me to start reading uh, more books. Actually, and the the first thing that I did after completing the Little Prince was going on Google, mm-hmm. googling books similar to Little Prince. Uh, and uh, the first book that showed up was uh, also a book that we have in common, which is uh, John Livingston Seagull, John. another incredible book as well. Absolutely. Yes. Again, that whole notion of believing in yourself, mm. that there's no amount of external influence that's going to motivate you as much as you can motivate yourself. Yeah. And that accountability yeah. for self, I think, is a big differentiator in people's success. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's true. And so John Livingston Seagull is a great book because it's uh, kind of tells the story that uh, you know you shouldn't uh, necessarily do take for granted to to follow the mainstream of society. Let's say that's like that's kind of the underlying message is uh, you know be yourself and so on. And John Livingston Seagull is the book about uh, John Livingston Seagull, of course, mm-hmm. who wants to be the fastest seagull in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, in a in a world of seagulls that doesn't care about flying for the sake of flying, they mm-hmm. fly because they hunt food. Mm-hmm. But John Livingston Seagull, he flies because he loves flying. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so on and so forth. So, so to that end, Megan, um, before we move on from our little book club uh, mm-hmm. here today, what is uh, what would you say that your favorite book of all time would be? So we we started with two very strong options uh, here. But do you have anything else that really have inspired you? I was surprised by the book that really blew me away because I'm typically interested in human emotion, beautiful stories, Mm. but the book Fountainhead by Anne Rand, it follows the path of Howard Rourke, this amazing architect who gets thrown out of university 
and he goes ahead and builds buildings that he loves. And that's the point of objectivism is the way he sees it and the way he loves it is enough for him. He doesn't need the outside world to tell him that it's a wonderful building. He feels it's a wonderful building. And it's a complex story, but the characters are very well placed because you can also, in the moment, sit in a room and you'll be like, that's a Howard Rock, that's a this one, that's a that one. It's almost as if there are characters in life who you can expect certain things from, and you need to be prepared. It's okay that someone has a different view to you. It's okay if someone doesn't like what you're doing. But at the same time, if what you're doing is good and it pleases you, do it. Right, do right. it anyway. So it's uh, kind of coming to terms with your own passions and yes. not, not letting yourself be distracted by other people's opinion. Basically. Yes, yeah, yeah. yes. Although, of course, it's good to be inclusive. We know this, but sometimes, you know, you draw a picture and you like it, it's your picture. Yes, That's okay. Exactly. Put it on the wall. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so, Megan, um, you've been, uh, you, you, are, you have wealth of experience in this industry. You have more than uh, 20 years uh, experience in the agami industry and particularly on the management side and more specifically on the, uh, um, on the performance management uh, side. Can you talk a little bit more about your background and kind of what led you into performance management and just the, your passion for management in general? Sure. When I left school, I was fascinated with psychology. I went to university, nice. I did a Bachelor of Arts, studied psychology, communication, sociology. I remember even looking into criminology. And you were very impressionable at that age. And we were going through some incredible changes in South Africa at the time. It was 1994. And I remember standing in line. I just turned 18 and voting for Madiba, Armandela. And there was such a period of change in our country that it really stood that leaders stood up and took the lead and you could admire them and connect with them because they had people in mind. They didn't have politics, they had people in mind. And so I took a lot of inspiration from Nelson Mandela, not just because I'm South African, but because his principles ring true every single day. And Going into a leadership position from leaving university, I was first a team leader in a call center in the late 90s. Oh, well. And we used to make and take phone calls. There was none of this chat or a knowledge base. And if you wanted to confirm your bank account, you would give them a secret number out of five potential numbers. <laughs> and this was an amazing role for me because, you know, initially I had around six people who would be working in the call center and we'd, we would, we had such a passion for the customer because for me, my heart and what I represented towards who the customer was, was reflected in those people. So we had a group consciousness around the work we were doing. It wasn't me being a manager and you report to me and these are the things you have to do. Not at all. I, I worked hard from young to create a group consciousness around success. So, obviously, you, you, you expand in your career, you take on teams. For me, it doesn't matter whether you're 100 people or 10 people. If you form a common ground of why you are there, why are you here? Why are you in this job? What makes you tick? What do you love about it? And you connect with those individuals authentically. That is the one lesson I learned about leadership 
right off the bat. I'm not going to try and be someone I'm not. I'm coming in to be my authentic self so that I can connect with the people I work with in an authentic way. And too often that's left out. We go through loads of leadership programs. We read loads of leadership books and we get all the tips and steps that you should take when actually a lot of it just comes down to who are you and how can you motivate someone else to be their best? Right. We're all individuals at the end of the day, right? And, Indeed. Uh, with a hundred individuals, there will be a hundred different leadership styles as well. And exactly. it's not necessarily a one model fits all, right? Like even, you know, your personal hero, Nelson Mandela from young age, incredible leader that inspired the entire world. Mm -hmm. But it's not necessarily looking at Nelson Mandela and trying to be exactly like him, right? Exactly. You have to listen to yourself and, and, and so on. I'm just curious, before we continue on that discussion, um, you know, growing up and being kind of in that formative age when uh, Nelson Mandela took power and, uh, you know, the, the the whole kind of world movement that came from from that, that must have been like incredibly inspiring. Like, what, what's, um, for you, what were kind of the... Um, like, how did Nelson Mandela inspire you? What were some of his principles that uh, that you looked up to? And can you talk a little bit more, maybe, about that time uh, in like, being in South, uh, South Africa during that time? That'd be interesting. Most definitely. And I think the reason why it impacted me was because I was born and spent my first six years in Zimbabwe. So we didn't have apartheid. And so right. when we moved to South Africa, that I couldn't understand the environment that I found myself in. When Nelson Mandela was released in 91, that release of his coming out with no anger, yeah. with absolute forgiveness right. and a view to grow, to heal this country of ours. So, you know, I think I was, uh, so I was what, 14, 13, 14 wow, this is Nelson Mandela. So when I turned 18 in the January, I was at, we start university in the Southern Hemisphere in January. When I turned 18 in the January and we were doing our first free and fair elections in the April, when I stood in that queue to, do, to go and cast my vote, it was a heart-based vote, but it was also one of deep admiration for someone who can come out of such an incredibly difficult situation and clear his heart and give his best. And that to me, the inspiration sits in don't hold on to what's negative. Don't look to pay back, look to grow, look yeah. to make better. And apart from the fact that he was highly inspirational, I think also his tenderness was very significant and he was himself. And there's that authenticity again. Amazing. And so, uh so now, Megan, you know, you, you've uh, gone through an, a, a very inspiring career. Uh, how do you approach leadership uh, today with, uh, with that backdrop and uh, the, uh, the experience that you have in your life? What's, uh, what is your kind of like leadership philosophy and what principles do you carry with you today? My leadership style began in South Africa, so it was a particular style of leadership. Uh, as South Africans, we are often teased for being very direct. <laughs> And I began working with um, Swedes in 2004. And I remember going to meetings in Stockholm and we'd all sit around a table and everybody's very polite. Okay. And you have a meeting in order to schedule the next meeting to summarize from this meeting. 
And at that time, you know, I'm there in my late 20s thinking to myself, can't we just get to the point? But that's not the point. The point is the collaboration. Um, then working in a few different countries, I've been so blessed. You know, I've, I've worked in South Africa, Zambia, uh, Romania, the UK, Sweden, uh, Spain, a number of different countries where it's all about the culture first. So for me, from a leadership perspective, is you really need to understand who your audience is and adapt your leadership style to that from the beginning. I'm very much against people walking into a room and being the manager. I'm very much towards walking into a room without an ego and really just introducing yourself to people as a person. Sharing goals for me is the number one when it comes to leadership. So. Let's say, for example, GGR is the heart of the business. That's what keeps the, the business running. Okay, how does GGR and reaching great GGR affect me as a leader? And how does GGR affect the people in my team? And this could be anything from customer support to payments and risk to CRM or even a game provider. What does it mean for you to contribute to GGR? What's your purpose? Why do you come here? So the first thing I do is that I connect with that person and how their performance impacts on the company's performance. So you're great, you're in payments and risk. Every time you save us money, it means we earn more. That's great. That said, we don't put in a focus on what you were saying earlier, which is we're all a bunch of individuals. So you need to create a common ground. Why are we here? What are we doing? And feedback. So feedback to me is the absolute breakfast of champions. And the methodology that I use when it comes to feedback is a very simple one. I remember doing a workshop some years ago where I handed out four big pieces of paper with markers. And I was looking for, uh, it was a conference and I was looking for, for volunteers. So I handed out you know, these big papers with the markers to four different volunteers. And the first um, instruction to them was, you've got your marker, you've got your paper. I'm going to give you a description of what to draw, and then I'm going to give you 90 seconds to do your best and draw it. And of course, you know, you've got that enthusiasm in the group. Everybody's curious what other people are going to draw. And I explained, you need to draw a house. It should be in a garden. You should show what time of year it is. So if it's summer, then a sun. Show some, um, show a style to the house. So is it a Mediterranean home? Is it an apartment? And if you can and you have time, draw an animal in the garden as well. And that's it. So we started one minute and a half. And frantically drawing and everybody's getting engaged at the table. And then I called time. I said, okay, stop, marker's down. The first person that I went to, I raved about the drawing. I said, this is fantastic. My goodness, what a brilliant drawing. Oh, I love it. I love it. Nothing specific. I love it. Well done. To the next person, I was awful. I said, what is this? <laughs> this is nothing, what, nothing from what we discussed. I don't even know what you're doing here, honestly, really. Then I moved to the third person. And I looked and I continued walking. I completely ignored them. 
The fourth person, I said, thank you for doing this task. What did you hear that you needed to do? And they said, you asked me to draw X, Y, Z. I said, that's great. I really like what you've done with the sun here. It shows that it's shiny. I can't quite make out if that's a dog or a cat. A little bit more time, I'm sure you'll succeed. Thank you. And this is exactly what we as leaders do every day of our lives, from the minute we walk into the building to the minute that we leave. We are constantly giving feedback without even realizing it. So the question that I posed to these four people was, um, how likely are you to do this task again? And the second question was, what feedback did you get? So for example, the person who got all positive feedback had no idea what to do differently next time. The person who got all negative feedback, obviously not willing to do the task again. But you know that the impact was worst on the person that I ignored. And when we talked about the person that I'd given them the proper feedback sort of sandwich, which is, thank you, here's something positive, you could do this differently next time, keep going, thank you very much. That person who was ignored was the person who you would get the least performance from going forward. And too often we see this in our industry. We have people coming into roles where they may have the skills, they may have the experience, but put them with a leader who doesn't give them feedback. And that performance will just decline, 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 decline. And that's what I'm passionate about, is working with leaders to help them understand their personal impact based on their behavior. You know, you can, you can do a number of different things, but if you ignore someone, or you only give positive, or you only give negative, you're not going to develop anybody, and least of all yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's true. So, so um, it's it's a classic way right, to get people to uh, uh, to listen to your feedback is to sandwich it, and, and uh, you start with something positive. Mm. You give the uh, uh, you give the co constructive uh, feedback, and then you end with something positive, uh, right? The classic sandwich. It, it is classic, but I think it's important not to use it as a methodology. It or it should become part of you. So even in my personal life. If I'm upset about something, I know not to just say everything's negative or say everything's positive. I think we need to be able to be comfortable to say good things with something else. You know, um, the best feedback that I've ever got was with a manager I had 20 years ago, 22 years ago, whoops, <laughs> revealing my age, whoops. But what was so cool about her was that she was fully willing to give me negative feedback and positive feedback and had the same enthusiasm about both. Right, right, right. Yeah, that, that's a great point. Uh, is it also uh, true, Megan? So I, I believe that as well as a leadership philosophy that uh, it's uh, equally important to give positive as uh, negative feedback. Uh, is it a personality trait as well, do you think? Let, let's say that you are a quite agreeable person by nature. Um, or very disagreeable person by nature, for that matter. Um, how much can you move in that? Uh, like, if your personality is set in one or the other, can you move to the other side? Can you move to the middle? Or is it more like, okay, I'm a very agreeable person. I have a very, very hard time to give negative feedback. So I'm going to make the most out of my personality and the tools that I have. That is a brilliant question, because I was talking earlier about authenticity. You can't be 100% authentic, because if you are shy, 
or if you are more bombastic, that will come through in terms of your management style. But that's where I take a step back and say, how did that leader come to be? How did they end up in this role in the first place? And what's valuable about what they're doing that maybe is you know, more negative, but what's valuable about what they're doing that's more positive? I was thinking about this earlier today was, is it accurate to say that leaders are born, that you're a born leader? I think, yes, there's that possibility, but you need to have grown a certain amount of confidence in yourself and you need to have a certain level of being able to deal with people and adapt to people in order to be a good leader. For those of us who are being led by bad managers, we know exactly what they're not doing and we know exactly how we're being damaged. When we're being led by an amazing leader, we're always motivated and you know, keen to go and get things done. But leadership is a skill. Yes, some of it is inbred, but unless you ha you're working that muscle constantly, you're never gonna be ahead of the game. So to answer your question, I think, yes, be yourself, be authentic, but also realize you're gonna have to have certain traits that are non-negotiable. Right. So, so uh, are there, do you think, uh, a red thread in good leaders uh, that you see through and through, regardless of what type of organization they're in, regardless mm -hmm. of what culture they're in? Is there a, is a certain personality traits uh, that is always there in the best of the best leaders? Accountability. Right. So as a leader, I'm fully accountable for myself, but I'm also accountable for the people in my team. Right. So essentially, um, if uh, say that uh, one of your employees uh, makes a mistake mm -hmm. and uh, now this mistake is being brought up on a kind of a higher level, let's say, as a leader, um, it is important to take the responsibility of, of uh, what your employees uh, do. And for example, that's what you're getting at is. Exactly. You've yeah. always got an ultimate owner. Yes. So as an ultimate owner, as a leader, you take responsibility for the success or failure either way, because you're the one who leads those people who produce that task, for example. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a, for me, I, I completely agree with you that uh, there are a lot of leadership books uh, that uh, tells you, you know, do this, do that, you know, a leader does this, a leader does that. And, uh, and it can be a very like one size fits all. And then you, you see like unconventional leaders like, uh, say Elon Musk, for example, mm -hmm. who is known for being really, really difficult to work with. Mm. But then you ask, uh, you know, how come they are successful um, mm -hmm. if uh, what this book is, is describing is the opposite of, of, of that? And for me, um, the one, the like the best book on leadership that I've uh, read is uh, called uh, The Dichotomy of Leadership mm -hmm. by Jack Willink. Yes. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with, uh, with that book, but uh, he is an ex-Navy uh, SEAL. Uh, Joko Willink, like very alpha male, you know, he's, yes. he's a big guy, you know, you see him, it's like, uh, you know, he's ready to go to war, uh, Joko, and um, so he led um, uh, um, a platoon in, in the Navy SEALs, and these are, you know, some of the most hardest uh, people in the world to manage, right, mm -hmm. and how do you manage them, and the, the perception is very much that, um, you know, if you're in the military, uh, you tell the sol soldiers go this way, mm -hmm. and then the soldiers are expected to go this way. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's it's uh, th that's the way it is, and and uh, they are programmed like robots to do wh what mm -hmm. the leader tells you. But uh, Joko explains that it's not at all like that actually, because um, a great leader in that environment 
needs to gain the respect of, of uh, the soldiers and, and the people that he is uh, uh, accountable for. And he talks about the dichotomy of leadership that uh, there is no set way to be a great leader. Uh, there is only situations mm. and in each situation you need to you need to understand whether to be firm, whether to be loose, uh, wh whether to give leeway, whether to give feedback, whether to not give feedback. And, and, and all that leadership is, is uh, understanding that it's a dichotomy and mm -hmm. every situation is, uh, is unique, uh, basically. And that's what he talks about as well with, you know, in companies, some companies are very successful. Uh, they, um, they are on a really good trajectory. Uh, the staff is doing all these things right and and in that environment you put your employees as much forward as possible you know try things you know if you fail that's okay you know like it, it, like thrive in this environment because you know we have already kind of figured out a formula how to make this company work but then on the other hand you have companies that um that are really struggling mm -hmm. something might happen covid happens for example and that uh, throws uh, the entire company uh, all around and now you need to figure out how to uh, how to kind of like rebuild the organization and perhaps that requires leadership which is much much more hands-on and like like guys now you need to take a back seat for a little bit because uh, the leader now needs to step in and really take over and make sure that we steer the, co the company into a new direction and I, I, I thought that resonated a lot with um, kind of how certain leaders are that seem unconventional can be very successful mm -hmm. because they can be successful in 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 a, in, in a particular style of um, company that they are trying to build, but the same leader would be very unsuccessful in another environment. Like if you would put Elon Musk as the CEO of Apple, for example, right. you know, it would probably not be yeah. that, that great, great, right? So I thought that was a good kind of like uh, visualization of leadership that it's, it's really hard, right? I mean, you need to really understand the situation you're in and how, um, how things change from a day-to-day -day or a month-to-month -month basis and kind of react to that as a, as a leader. We grow as leaders, I believe, when we choose environments that foster leadership. So if you go into an organization that's broken and you want to fix, for example, as a consultant, I had this many times in my consulting uh, years, is that you go into an organization and C-level says, we need our staff to be producing more. Okay, <laughs> how are we going to do that? Right. I remember one consulting project I went on that there is something very special about taking someone out of the office for a coffee and so they can sit and smoke cigarettes if they want to yeah. right but doing that upset the sea levels please stop taking people out of the building because they're not productive and i wanted to say funnily enough all those i've had coffee with are performing way better than they were before <laughs> because someone took an interest, someone listened. Right. As leaders, you will hear the same story over and over again, but you have to act like it's the first time you're hearing it. So if I know that an organization's broken because of a particular style of leadership that's in there, I can't go and fix that person and not look at who was affected by that person. So you can take 10 people for coffee who all tell you the same story, you have to hear it like it's the first time. <laughs> I love that. Uh, so, so to that end, uh, Megan, do you think uh, is it a good thing or a bad thing for a manager to be close friends with uh, their employees? This is a touchy one. 
right? And I say that because earlier in my career, I would always be the one who stood up for those who were being bullied, right? right? Mm -hmm. So you see, you know, I started my career with, with customer service. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you see things that are going wrong for the customer service team, then you take it on and you, you know, drive for change. And then you end up going for a beer afterwards. And, you know, then there's chatting and hanging out. Malta in particular is difficult because, you know, it's a small island. We all know each other. And frequently people will mix regardless of their stature in the business. I think if you're going to be friends with someone who reports to you, there's got to be a very clear line. In fact, on those occasions where I've had a friendship with somebody in my team or recruited someone that I've worked with previously that I have a friendship with, is you actually almost drive that person harder than everyone else right. so that you never get the impression that they're a favorite. Yeah. So I, I think it's a, it's a touchy, tricky one because you never want to be seen to take preference and you also never want to be in a position where you're sharing confidential information with that person that you shouldn't because that's what happens in friendship we talk about anything yeah. but in a business you can't yeah yeah I've, I've always personally i've always been scared of, of uh, that uh, fact like I, ha I have a lot of um, good friends in my network and uh, and so on that would be i know would be incredible uh, uh staff members and police uh, here but I've, I've always been scared of the fact that uh, that hiring a friend could hurt the relationship because at the end of the day, you know, when you're at work, you're at work. And, mm. uh, you know, my personality, for example, is very different when I'm at work from when I'm uh, in my private life and mm -hmm. with friends and so on. And I've always been really scared of that, uh, crossing the boundaries uh, uh, there. Uh, How do you resolve the difference between you socially or privately with the persona that you have in the workplace? So it's a good question. Um, and. Um, <clears throat> It's a very good question. Uh, I, I think, yeah, work-wise, um, you know, at the end of the day, you walk into the workplace with a very clear goal in mind, mm -hmm. and that is to steer the, the ship towards a particular direction. Mm -hmm. So uh, you will you will form your personality and you will form the decision making and communication and so on based on that goal. Uh, that is what you come in here to do. That is the mission. Um, and once you leave the building and you go into your private life you will navigate your private life with a different set of um, principles and different set, uh, and, a, and a different mission of where you are heading and who you want to be and so on and so forth. So I think it's, um, uh, it's two very different personalities that you have to form, I think, uh, uh, to, 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 you have an obligation to take the company first here and to steer the company to the best of your ability, whereas in your private life, uh, it is more your own long-term uh, kind of yeah, value chain that you uh, that you follow. It's like yeah. that dichotomy that you were mentioning earlier. I sometimes wonder if it is a dichotomy or not, because you know, as an individual, you will have a certain number of strengths and a certain number of flaws. Too often, when we want to develop people, is we think we need to give them the tools to improve on their flaws. For me, it's about, okay, 20% effort on your flaws, 80% effort on maximizing your strengths. Who am I as an individual? Well, we all have 
different personalities for different friends, for example. We know who to go to yeah. when we need to cry. We know who to go to to go and laugh your head off. Um, those parts of our personalities come alive in different ways within the workplace because of appropriacy. We have to be appropriate. Now, for me, I, I'm generally a very joyful person. I've got a good sense of humor, but that's not always required in the workplace, right? <laughs> and it's certainly not always required in my private life. But who I am is a multiple of different things. I don't want to say that, yes, we have goals within the business and we work towards those goals, but actually in our personal lives, we have goals too, you know, and for me, I might drive hard on um, punctu punctuality and commitment and dedication within the workplace, but then I love to sleep in on a Saturday. So those are just, con they're not conflicting, they're both with me. It's not an either or, in my opinion. Mm. We tend to say I'm either going to be like this in my leadership role or I'm going to be like this. No, it's either and. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting yeah, uh, point too. I, I think also now as I'm thinking through this too, uh, I think also as leaders um, in, in, in companies, your, your staff will also look to you for science, mm -hmm. uh, positive science, negative science, positive energy, negative energy, and they'll feed from that. Mm -hmm. And um, I think one of the um, biggest learning experiences for me as a manager is the uh, importance of sending the right energy to the team. Um, and uh, the energy that you're sending uh, to your to your staff, you know, especially navigating a startup, you know, startups are risky, you know. Like inherently, there's a lot of risk. So inherently, your staff will also be a little bit nervous as you are navigating this journey. And so um, to, uh, uh, to, to send out uh, energy of uh, confidence and stability is uh, really important uh, in this workplace. And, you know, the, um, the difficulty is, of course, that as a leader or as a founder of a company, you are the one who's taken the most risk. Mm. Uh, and so if something is a bit shaky, um, you are the one who is personally the most accountable for what could happen if things mm -hmm. goes uh, south. But that also requires you to be the strongest in those mm -hmm. moments. Um, and I think that also kind of um, it calluses the mind a bit as well when you go through this, because uh, you in those moments you need to stay strong, you need to stay stable and so on, and, and you need to send that, that positive energy. Whereas in your private life, um, I think when you form when you form deep friendships and so on, uh, it is a lot about kind of getting to that inner layer of the onion. And uh, the closer friends you have, they see you for who you really are, right? Mm -hmm. And that's uh, at the end of the day, I think it's the it's the goal in, in deep friendship is to be able to uh, to expose yourself for for who you are. And with that comes out, uh, you know, some of the insecurities, uh, some of the anger or frustrations or those kind of like darker feelings that uh, are always there. Um, that uh, in a work environment uh, would uh, not be beneficial for the mission again of the company and respecting that uh, that, uh, that that your staff are also nervous in this environment. I think that's that's also a little bit part of it. I think you said something so interesting now, which is um, who I really am. That mm. you're able to do that with friends, but there's actually a huge element of who you really are in your workplace. Yeah, like who I really am socially and in the workplace is I'm 
so interested in inspiring other people about themselves. Yeah. So for me, the way that I am in my friendships is is often how I am at work in the sense that I'm engaged and encouraging and I love to see people succeed. Yeah. But another thing is that we also have to make ourselves vulnerable as leaders. We all have personal stories. And I don't believe HR is a separate function. I think HR is a function of a manager, first and foremost, in the sense that it's your job to sit down and connect with the person mm. on some level. Mm. In this, and, and kind of building on that is, I have a personality and it is part of the way that I lead. However, it's not always possible especially in your position running a whole business, it's not always possible to be consistent. Yes, you can be stable. Yes, you can be strong and confident. But consistency isn't always possible. So it's kind of important to also have days when maybe you're not as outgoing as you ordinarily are, uh, that people can see you as a human being. I know those days when you go to the office and you have to win an Oscar, you know, and yeah. we do it because we are accountable and we're leaders. But at the same time, I, I really advocate that we show our human side. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, Regana, when you talk about uh, authenticity, um, maybe it also is um, highly relevant to the values that you bring to work, because I think those are those need to be authentic. You know, what values are you building this business uh, on? Because they they stay like regardless of what your emotions are on a day and how you feel and so on. I think your values stay very much uh, the same mm -hmm. regardless of uh, the day to day um, situation that you're in. And so, you know, when you build a business, so like what, what are the values that you bring into this business? What are the values that you bring into your leadership? And uh, what are the values that you uh, try to communicate uh, the best that you can? And, and, and then it's okay, you know, uh, emotionally uh, on a day to day, uh, that's as, as you point out, you know, I have, you have days when you are like sunshine and roses and everything is great. High five to everyone, you know, uh, and other days where it's uh, hoodie on and uh, in, into the office uh, kind of thing. And I think maybe that is also part of the authenticity here. It's more like, like what, what are your values that you believe in? Perhaps that is also an, an important thing in that discussion of, of authenticity, because again, you, you might have moments of doubt. Uh, in this journey, and I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong uh, here, and correct me if, if I'm wrong. But um, I have a hard time thinking of moments where it's beneficial to 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 express that that doubt. Um, uh, and and that's not to say that you should not confront the hard realities of a business. Like yes you know, we, we have made a big mistake and we need to correct it. You know, I think that is really important to talk about in an organization, but I think I, I don't think it is beneficial to, to say we made a big mistake and I don't know if we're going to make it. I don't know. It, it's true. I think there's a uh, realism that has to come into how we work in our businesses. You asked me about the first value I begin with. And for me, it's about creating common ground. So understanding, what are we all here to do? Okay, who's going to be responsible for what? You can also sort of move responsibilities around where you get your 
positive person for the day, uh, you know, is a is a moving thing. But from a values perspective, what are my personal values versus my business values? This is another example of it's not either or, it's and. What are my personal and business values? My personal most important value is freedom. I need to feel that I have freedom. And that includes discipline, right? So because I have a commitment to achieving a particular goal, I give myself the freedom to do what it takes to get to that goal. But because I value freedom, I tend to uh, expect that other people might value freedom and they don't. Some people value structure. Some people value very clear deliverables. You have to create a common set of values for the business that's not sat in your mission statement, but that's actually sat in what are the traits that our business has. So if, for example, efficiency is one of your values, that you're going to have a different organization to an organization where collaboration is your, your first value. So I think we have to be very careful around how we pull those two, three words into a business. Um, but also you have to understand what are the values of other people. So you manage somebody who, for example, also likes freedom, then I'll motivate that person to say, hey, if you, if you manage, take the afternoon off. Yeah. Versus someone who wants structure, which is that I'd say, we will be able to book a day off for you at a date that suits you best, mm -hmm. and you can take the whole day. So yeah. that adaptability, you know, it's powerful, but you're doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah, it's true. So, so, uh, so Megan, you're uh, also an expert in uh, performance uh, management. Uh, I, I'm looking at my outline here, and we're at the second question out of 15, by the way. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but um, in performance management, can you talk about this concept a bit? And uh, when you consult for businesses, and uh, also as a, as a, as, an, uh, as the director of operations at uh, Wizard Games, like how, like, can you talk about performance management? What is it, and uh, how do you? How do you infuse this into your companies? I have a strap line on performance management that I right. always use. If I want to understand the value of somebody and their performance, I ask the question, what doesn't happen when you don't come to work? So if Pierre goes on a holiday for a year, what's going to happen to the business? Because there are certain things that Pierre brings to next that nobody else can. But there are also certain outputs and business successes that won't be reached if Pierre's not here. So performance management, first and foremost, is down to what does this person believe they bring to the organization? And if they're not there, it won't happen. There's got to be that sense of my contribution is big enough for this whole organization to be successful. And... Performance management really is down to if you have KPIs that are hard KPIs, your GGR is your biggest, hardest KPR, K KPI, then how does I make that meaningful to someone sitting in customer support? And I'll give you a perfect example. If you have the systems in place, which you should, you take a customer who costs 300 euro to acquire, and the minute that they come through to customer support, that person can make or break their perception of the business. So 
I did an experiment where we were able to take customer IDs and tag them back to the customer support agent. So at the end of the month, Pierre, you've handled 430 contacts this month. Of those contacts, 80% of them went and deposited a second time. 30% of them are now regular loyal players with us. So what is your impact on the business and its success? You, it has to come down into the basics. Right, and, and um, an interesting uh, part to that, I suppose, is um, the importance of having that uh, one strong KPI in the business. In, as an iGaming operator, the, uh, the GDR is the, um, the natural KPI, let's say, but many businesses are, are different. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's, it, and it's something I've been thinking a lot about lately. Is, um, isn't it important to just find that KPI? that guides the entire business, like that one KPI that is, uh, that is, measured, that is how you measure, measure success in this business, and then figuring out how that is relevant to every single employee in the company, like you just explained here on the DDR and the, and the CS side. Is that mm. something, something you think about? Uh, too, do you think? How important is it to have that uh, like one KPI to then permeate down into the business? I think you have to look at what is the purpose of the business. So. Mm. Um, you know, if, for example, you're a marketing business, um, you're going to want to know what the reach of your marketing efforts are and your return on investment. Mm. Net promoter scores, companies wanting to know, you know, um, what's happening on Glassdoor and how we're perceived as a business. Yeah. There's many different things that you could look at to say this is the ultimate KPI here. This is yeah. the ultimate the ultimate is profit. We know this across any business, otherwise why would we be in business? Again, I go back to the question, what doesn't happen when you don't come to work? Yeah. That's gonna be your KPI. Mm -hmm. That's gonna be your personal reason for being here. But it, it depends, I mean, various industries have various KPIs, but it's all into ROI. It's all what money comes into the owner's pocket at the end of the day, and yeah. how do you reach that goal? If you're running a business, a call center, you're going to want to have happy people on the phones. If you're running a wood making business, you want to produce fantastic desks and chairs. So how do you do that? What is the ultimate measurement on whether you are, it's a yes or a no? And what I do with performance management often in KPIs is the best way for me to describe it is, let's say um, you were going to run a race. Uh, and, uh, a hiking, running race. There are a few elements to your success in that race. So first of all will be the amount of time you spend training. Second of all will be the um, amount of uh, effort that you put into that training. The third would be what clothes are you wearing? So what equipment do you have? You have the right shoes? Do you have this or that? Um, and lastly, what distance are you training? So those are four KPIs. And you could say, oh, they're all worth 25% each. Well, actually, um, is it more important to spend more time training or is it uh, more important to go more distance? Because if you're doing time and you're going up and down, up and down 100 meters at a time, it's very different to training for distance if you're going on a distance race. So instead of necessarily saying, okay, 80% of your focus needs to be on the amount of time that you spend and only 10% on the distance. You're going to get a different outcome. For me, KPIs are actually a yes or no scenario. So did you do the distance? Did you spend the time? Do you have the equipment? 
and are you ready to go? So it's a yes or no. I think that's important. But also, if you want to motivate someone, you need to kind of put it on a grade. So I think it often depends on seniority. So for more junior people in the business who are motivated to see how they're developing, then I would say to them, all right, you need to put 50% on distance and 20%. Depends on the person. But in reality, for us in senior positions, it's a matter of you achieved it or you didn't. So it's a yes or no. <laughs> so if I look at... Uh, the game studio working at Wizard, there's certain things that are non-negotiable. So you produce a game, did you produce it? Yes or no? Done. Yeah. And everybody who's involved in making that happen is, is producing that game at the end of the day. Was it launched on time? How did it perform? We're all involved in that, all of us. Right, right, right. So if I make that the yes or no, delivery be, delivery on time, fine. But if we make it high quality and on time, that's different. Right. So instead of, um, instead of thinking about uh, kind of vaguely measured KPIs, uh, you know, did you, did you deliver, you know, 18 or 24, whatever the, um, the dynamic is, uh, it's uh, either a yes or no, did it succeed or did it not succeed? Because it's much more black and white, that's what we're saying here, right? Yeah. Exactly, yeah, I think it is a matter of did you or didn't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, often time for sure. So, so, so Megan, uh, you talk a lot about uh, customer support. You have the background uh, there at the uh, Betson, of course, which we uh, uh, an experience that we share both of us. We worked at that company, um, and uh, the importance of uh, customer support for an organization. At the same time, most uh, organizations treat customer support as kind of a necessary evil. I would mm. almost uh, say. Um, can you talk more about why is customer support uh, important and uh, also how do you measure success? What is the best way to measure success mm. for a customer supporting? Because traditionally it would be perhaps uh, how many contacts have that uh, agent uh, completed and what is the average score that came from the customers and so on. Can you talk more about your thoughts? There? Absolutely. If we talk about one of my values being freedom, I believe that people need freedom to be authentic in their interactions with customers. If you say to someone, you've got to do 60 chats at an average of three to five minutes each, and you make one of the KPIs their satisfaction level of the customer, you're actually building a robot. You're building somebody who's going to handle as many as they can in the shortest period of time that they can with much less focus on, is that customer coming back? Now we've come so far since 1999, coming into gaming in 2004, we've come so far, we have the ability to take a customer ID and track it. So if I'm a customer support agent, first of all, I need to be able to have the freedom and the knowledge to handle that inquiry instead of being a receptionist. So we know when we want to retain customers, they've usually made one deposit with us. What's the next query going to be? Can I have a bonus? Or I want to withdraw and I have to go through AML. So we've been making this mistake for years. We put receptionists on the front line. We give them crazy targets of 60 chats in three to five minutes. And we don't at any point measure what happens when that customer talks to you. So Pierre, if we do it properly, you would be able to sit down with your leader at the end of the month and say, okay, so I handled 500 contacts this month. 
Of those 500, 300 went on to make a second deposit. And of those 500, 20 are now in their third month with us. Right. Right? So instead of, instead of uh, CS becoming this necessary evil, uh, it becomes a retention tool exactly. that uh, actually benefits uh, the company financially. And we're so stuck in this process of, oh, massive acquisition cost. Okay, go to the operator. Customer leaves. Okay, this is normal. We know. But in reality, if we were paying our customer support agents 35000 a year, they would be like team leaders. <laughs> They're business owners. So if you euro a day to give out bonuses to who I believe should get them and you tell me that I can actually approve a first withdrawal or I could actually have a responsible gambling call with somebody who comes through or I can actually go into a game and see if I can see where the issue happened. You pay them that amount of money, they'll know that amount of information with experience and that customer will stay. But no, let's keep them as receptionists. <laughs> let's go with AI. Why? Yeah, and also naturally, this is uh, I think the question on on many people's uh, minds here. They 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 hear you say this, Megan. Uh, oh my God, thirty five thousand uh, a month. At the same time, we are trying to cut the expenses in this uh, company, and and uh, um, and with the rise of AI, the expectation perhaps is that the CS is the first um, team that will be disrupted and replaced by AI. And uh, there's already uh, obviously tools that uh, that can that can do that to some extent, and they keep getting better and better and better. So uh, how do you uh, how do you join the, the the fact that AI is getting better with the fact that we also need to upskill and pay our CS agents more? Where most companies are thinking about how can we actually remove the human mm -hmm. from the whole process? Mm -hmm. I think it's going to take decades, and hopefully never will we value efficiency over the human touch. That is a very sad day. Each of us has different views on some of the solutions that come with AI. You know, for example, I can go into a knowledge base and type a question and instantly get my answer. If I value being able to help myself, no problem. AI is going to be my friend. But there are very few customers like that. Mm. More customers want the human touch. But when you touch a human and you have an interaction and that human can hardly do anything for you except let me forward that to the next department. Right. Please do me a favor. How many operators are out there? How many experiences can customers have? Loyalty is based on an actual interaction that makes a difference. What I'm afraid of with AI is that we depersonalize our industry. And what worries me with AI is that we'll make too many assumptions with predictive modeling. If this customer does this, then that, then this, then that. There's no insight in that process. And that's why I think customer service agents are the absolute backbone of the business in terms of customer journey. In the same way, we have to also look at the journey of the individuals in the business. You know, we focus so much acquisition of customers. Okay, acquisition of people. Retention of customers. Uh-huh, retention of people. Um, reactivation. Uh-huh. Okay, so how do you reactivate people who are disengaged? The tradition is, you know, your frontline receptionists, 
the person lapses and then it goes to uh, an outbound company who phones uh, age, uh, phones customers up and gets to reactivate them. Why is that the customer journey? They bring them on, they have a shit experience, and then off they go, and we try and reactivate them with a bigger bonus later. Why are we doing that? <laughs> it's crazy to me. <laughs> I'd rather hire 10 amazing people at 35,000 each than 20 people who are going to be so demotivated by the fact that they're a receptionist. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, do you think is it uh, because uh, most organizations, uh, you know, say the CFO, for example, is mm -hmm. looking at the numbers and uh, uh, not thinking about kind of the wider implications of these type of decisions. They are just looking at, okay, our budget for the CS team is this much. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's a very Excel-driven calculation that decides what the salary is going to be in comparison to. Like, is, is that often the resistance that you get, for example, in organizations when most you bring these ideas? Or? But then I say, fine, give me five people, pay them that salary, yeah. give them this freedom and, and um, individuality, and let's take it over a year. And I'll show you how many customers come back and repay that investment over and over and over again. Right, right, right. Uh, I want to ask you something else as well, uh, Megan. So um, you, you've uh, you've advised many businesses, you've been a part of many businesses, and you brought uh, performance management to a lot of businesses. Are there any uh, kind of horror stories that you've been uh, a part of, and uh, kind of you come into a business and it's just complete chaos? And just in general, when you come into a new business, how many businesses in your experience are like well functioning from mm -hmm. the beginning? Um, how many companies, you know, are like dysfunctional in general? Um, and uh, have you ever come into an exceptionally dysfunctional organization and uh, faced uh, some pretty remarkable challenges? Difficult question. <laughs> I think a toxic organization is based on toxic leadership. And when we talk about a fish rotting from the head down, if you have an egotistical, money-mad, couldn't-care-less owner, leader, CEO, whichever, that will permeate the rest of the organization. It's a lot easier when you're a consultant to come in and say, okay, your leadership style has these strengths, your leadership style also has these flaws, and this is the impact on the business. When you're a consultant, they can give you the middle finger and you leave. But somebody has to be willing to change their organization if they're going to bring someone like a consultant in. I've gone into organizations as an employee where the leadership is toxic. And challenging it would challenge my job, which would make me up for dismissal pretty quickly. So a situation, I believe, gets turned around when you don't try and solve everything at once. If you go into an organization where you can see certain people are in certain roles and probably shouldn't be, you can't change the whole organization, but you can change little things at a time. We also need to not put ourselves into environments that are bad for us. Sometimes you have to walk away. So a situation I've turned around with a toxic leader, 
Uh, I can remember one in particular a few years ago where this particular leader was too scared to have any faults and so constantly put themselves up as the know-all and never wanted to be seen to not have the answers to all the questions. And for me, it's a matter of getting close to that person and understanding their values, which we were talking about earlier, is, you know, for me being a free person and freedom is that I'm comfortable being vulnerable, I'm comfortable being confident. But a lot of people in leadership positions tend to have so much fear that they don't talk about. They don't want to be seen as not knowing the answer, when actually saying you don't know the answer is a strength in itself. So... For me, turnarounds happen when you really connect with what's preventing that person from being more effective. People are not motivated just by um, what's good for them. People are also motivated by what's bad. So it's not good for me to keep my job and show everybody that I know everything and no one can touch me, but I'm motivated because I'm, indis I'm indispensable. Mm -hmm. And I think People being comfortable to be vulnerable is the big trick. I'm comfortable to be vulnerable. And it's great for me when other people are too. And if they're not, I respect that. Right, right. right. Uh, and uh, so on the one hand, um, you know, we talk about uh, uh, like leaders who, who bring the wrong values to the organization and uh, that permeates down to the culture uh, in the team and and, um, uh, and so on. And, and that's, a, that's a quite clear example. Could it also be the opposite where a leader could be too lenient uh, mm -hmm. as well? And, um, uh, you know, sometimes you will hire the wrong person mm -hmm. who will bring toxicity into mm -hmm. the environment, but um, an agreeable, perhaps too agreeable leader will not be strong enough mm -hmm. to um, to recognize that and bring that person out today. So could that also equally be uh, an issue in organizations? Do you think that um, the management is too lenient as well? It does happen. And the more an organization grows, the more uh, that continues. So recruitment's a difficult one because I mean, I've heard horror stories where, you know, People come into an interview and they are fantastic and you put them in the role and then they're absolute monsters and they, oh, they wait until the six month probation's finished and then the, then the monster jumps then it, out. Then it comes out too. We as businesses need to be not afraid to remove people like that. But to answer your question, is there such a thing as being too lenient? Absolutely. Yeah. If you're a leader and you don't show a sense of discipline and commitment and accountability, you're simply not going to get the results because people will take advantage of you. If you can't make a decision and set a standard, people will take advantage. Yeah. So Megan, uh, you've worked in the industry for, for quite some time and uh, you've met some incredible leaders, you had poor leaders and uh, everything in between, of course. Uh, can you talk about your heroes through your journey and perhaps the most inspiring leaders that you worked with? Indeed. In 2004, I had the exceptional privilege of meeting Dave Flynn <laughs> in 2004. And at that time, he was an incredible leader, a shining example of a well-rounded, happy person who balanced work and life. Here we are on the verge of 2024, 20 years later, who is still my biggest hero, Dave Flynn. <laughs> And for a number of reasons, his leadership, his experience, but who he is as a human, a being. Other leaders who've stood out for me are those who 
are willing to go the extra marathon. It's not about going the extra mile. It's about going the extra marathon. <laughs> and I, I like this because you go the extra mile anyway. But I would say that one of the most inspiring leaders that I've met recently is my current boss, Ben McDonough. Oh. What, what an incredible guy because he works with a great balance of knowledge and heart. And going into a game studio now after so many years in B2C, it's intimidating. And we talked about imposter syndrome. I thought to myself, my goodness, here I am going into a game studio and I have all this experience in operations within the B2C environment. Ben's belief in me drives my belief in myself because he's patient and he facilitates and he cares. And it's not often that you find that, you know, we tend to work in a very cutthroat industry. So exceptional leaders are those who can be comfortable with what you're good at and what you're not good at. So I'm very lucky to say that right now I'm in a position where I'm working with someone that for me is a mentor, doesn't happen often. Uh, and, and also, we're going to start running off uh, here a little bit uh, um, again. I want to ask you as well in regards to remote work and mm. in person. I know this is something you have talked about uh, before as well. Um, here at Next, for example, we are remote first. And uh, since the pandemic, this is something that we have built our company uh, on. Um, and as we've navigated this, um, we realized there are pros and cons with uh, with this uh, uh, type of um, uh, approach to uh, to work. The pros are that we can hire a much uh, we can hire from a much wider pool of talent. Uh, we can give our employees much more freedom to uh, work from where they want. If they um, if they want to travel and work, they can do so. If they feel like working from home and uh, uh, they want to just shut off all the noise, they can do so. And of course, if they want to work from here in the office. Um, that's a great thing as well. On, on the, um, for us at least, on the flip side is uh, that uh, uh, it becomes a lot more difficult uh, sometimes to create a much uh, closer uh, kind of um, um, environment where, uh, where where the whole groups can come together. Sometimes um, we can be a little bit uh, working in silos uh, as a, as a team. So. Uh, so the marketing team is very much uh, communicating with, with the marketing team and, and uh, other teams are communicating in silos and it can be a little bit difficult to break sometimes, mm. I feel. So I want, to, I want to hear your thoughts on, on the remote versus in-person work. Is there a right answer here? Um, what Absolutely are your thoughts? not. Uh, I think it very much depends on the individual and the teams and the business and what you need to achieve. Remote, of course, has its benefits, but it also has its drawbacks. Hi, hybrid seems to work much better, but not as a policy of you have to be in this many days and you have to. Hybrid needs to be more flexible, um, but you can't replace in-person connection. It's very difficult to replace that. So, of course, there are many online tricks you can use to engage people with each other. But it, I think we as businesses have to be flexible. Did it always work, everybody being in the office? No. Does it work with people all being remote? No. So the hybrid is the answer, if you ask me. Yeah. Do you think uh, it seems like the trend is now kind of turning around a bit where 
uh, more companies are going back into the office and uh, the kind of um, remote structures that we set up during COVID is kind of played out a little bit. Do you get that feeling as well, mm-hmm. perhaps? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think it's a mistake? I think we've got to be careful how we do it. Not what we do, but how, how we do it. Yes, it's a trend. Yes, people are coming back into the office because, you know, companies value interaction between humans and so on. But it's how you do it, not what you do. Yeah, fair enough. What a great way to round off the uh, the episode there today. Megan, it's been a uh, fantastic uh, Friday afternoon uh, here together. Thank you I so feel, much, Pierre. Uh, I feel very energized going into the weekend after this. It's been a very good uh, conversation. So thank you so much for taking your time, Megan. This was uh, we planned this for a very long time, and I'm happy we finally could uh, could do it. Thank you. Thank so much. you so much, Pierre. Thank you.